want to say welcome to all of you, especially if you're our guest, maybe with us for the first time. We're delighted you're with us. We're delighted you at the bridge out in Glendive are with us as well. I've been in Portland uh, for the past couple of weeks, so it's fantastic to be back with you. I've been working on that pesky master's degree program, and I've got just one more of those trips uh, in February, and then if all goes according to plan, meaning if I don't fry out of the program, if I can make it through the rest of this semester and next semester, uh, then that means I would graduate in April, which would be a miraculous feat, so pray, would you please? Uh, Thank you very much to Bob Schwann and Sam Summers for uh, teaching while I was away. Those guys are just simply the best frankly. Uh, And the subject matter that we're going to take up today is quite uncomfortable, frankly. The stuff that we're going to talk about around repairing relationships causes much fear and trembling and consternation in all of us because relational damage exists in all of our lives. And it's a scary thing to walk down the road toward uh, relational healing and reconciliation and setting things right. Uh, These are fear and trembling sorts of moments. Speaking of fear and tremblings, there was a pirate ship. It was all about doing what pirates do, trolling the seven seas in search of pirate loot. It was under the command of this certain captain. He was exceedingly brave, even in the face of very, very long odds. One day while they were sailing the seven seas, the first mate approached the captain and said, Captain, I don't mean to alarm you in any way, but there is a hostile ship incoming. I believe it intends to attack us. The captain very calmly said, thank you, first mate. Now, would you please make your way to my stateroom and retrieve my red shirt? The first mate, he made his way to the captain's stateroom, got the captain's red shirt, brought it to the captain. The captain donned it and courageously led his men, his troops into battle and defeated the enemy pirates quite handily. The next day, the first mate approached the captain again and said, sir, once again, I don't mean to alarm you, but there are two I say two hostile ships incoming. I believe that they intend to attack us. The captain very calmly once again asked his first mate to make his way to his stateroom and bring him his red shirt. The first mate dutifully retrieved the captain's red shirt. He donned the red frock and once again very courageously led his men into battle, defeated all of the enemy pirates. The first mate, he's wondering, what what in the world is this red shirt thing about? So he just asked the captain. He approached him and said, what's the deal with the red shirt thing. Whenever there is an enemy threatening, you call for your red shirt. Does it have some sort of magical properties which cause us to prevail? Oh, no, the captain replied. I call for my red shirt prior to entering any battle as a way to motivate all of our forces in the battle. You see, with the red shirt on, when I'm wearing the red shirt, if I'm ever wounded during the firefight, my red shirt, it won't show my blood, and then all of our men will continue to fight unafraid, seeing their captain fearlessly leading the charge. I see, said the first mate, nodding his head understandingly. The next morning, the sun was just creeping up across the horizon. The first mate approached the captain and said, Sir, once again, I do not mean to alarm you, but there are now 12, count them, 12 hostile ships incoming. I believe they intend to attack us. The first mate was fully expecting the captain's usual request for his red shirt. He was somewhat surprised, however, when he heard the captain say, Would you please make your way to my stateroom and retrieve my brown pants? And the thought of repairing broken relationships for lots and lots and lots of us in all candor is a brown pants kind of thoughts, aren't they? When we think about the damage that some people have inflicted upon us and the thought of actually walking back into a relationship with somebody who caused us that kind of damage just in many cases causes us to lock up and freeze up and not even want to think about that kind of relational repair. Because we all have broken relationships, don't we? And we do this crazy thing that in our woundedness and in our pain, we build walls up brick by brick by brick. And we do that to keep the pain out. We do that in order to keep ourselves from being hurt again. But when we do that, we only end up locking ourselves off in a prison of our own making locking other people out, healthy, life-giving, positive relationships, locking them out. But get this, if we ever hope to rebuild broken, wrecked, and trashed relationships, which we all have, we've got to tear down the walls, frankly. 
We just have to be about tearing them down, which is exactly what we've been about for the last eight weeks in this Life Hurts, God Heals experience. We've been pressing into a whole bunch of the ways that we can tear down the walls that exist between us and God and us and other people because of our hurts, our habits, and our hang-ups. And really, at the end of the day, this is all about the choices that you and I choose to make. Because the choices that we get up and make every day either choose to keep us in our hurts, habits, and hang-ups or free us from our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. This whole 10-week experience is all about how our making different choices opens up the possibility that life can be different. Life does not have to stay just like it is today for you or for me. The trajectory that we're on that is a wreck and is only making us more of a wreck doesn't have to be the course that we spend our whole lives on. Sometimes we have difficulty understanding and believing that. We think this is just our lot in life. It doesn't have to be that way. And as we look today at this sixth choice in this series, it's called the relationship choice. There are two beatitudes from Jesus Christ himself that we're going to be talking about. We're on page 59 of your study guide if you want to turn there and follow along if you're taking notes. And so I was aided by some resources that were penned by John Baker and both Rick and Kay Warren this week as I unpacked and prepared this message. Look at what Matthew chapter 5 verses 7 through 9 says. This was from the Good News translation, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Word of God says this, happy are those who are merciful to others. Think about that. Happy are those who are merciful to others. And then over to verse 9, happy are those who work for peace. Happy are those who are merciful to others. Happy are those who work for peace. And where all of this is going to land today is with the choice to do the following. That is to evaluate all of my relationships, to offer forgiveness to those who have hurt me and make amends for harm that I have done to others, except when to do so would harm them or others. And we're all, if we're willing, going to walk out of those doors today with some homework to do, if you're willing, see. Jesus, when he gives this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, happy are those who are merciful to others, happy are those who work for peace, they ought to compel us to a new level of action, a new level of activity. They ought to compel us to be about going and repairing relationships by, first of all, forgiving those who have hurt us by forgiving those who have hurt us. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he's not just giving us some instructions where God is doing all of the work and we just sit passively by waiting for God to do all of the work to, all of the work to happen and unfold in our lives and in the lives of other people. No way. Jesus makes this teaching in particular all about our going, our action, our doing. What are we doing? And Jesus is saying, look, the most fulfilled you will ever be in your whole life is when you are merciful to others. The most fulfilled you will ever be in all of your life is when you are being merciful to other people. He goes on to say the most fulfilled you will ever be is when you're working for peace. And if you've ever leaned into a difficult situation, if you've ever leaned into a difficult circumstance and helped bring about peace in a situation, you know that to be true, don't you? You've never been more fulfilled than in those moments. And it's because, you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's all about mercy. It's what's fundamentally at the core of this gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is all about God condescending to us, God coming our way and making peace with us where we could not make peace with him. He had to come our way. Everything about the gospel, everything about God's continual work in our lives and on planet earth is all about reconciliation. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about mercy. It's all about broken relationships, damaged relationships being set right. The mercy that we extend to other people when they hurt us, it's clearly not deserved, is it? That's why it's called mercy, right? It isn't deserved, not even close to being deserved. And that work for peace, working for peace, it takes real effort. I can't tell you how many hours just this week I spent 
literally working for peace. It's almost uncanny. I thought, what in the world? Am I preaching a message on working for peace or something? It was one thing after another, working for peace. And it doesn't matter whether whether we messed up the relationship or the other person messed up the relationship. It just takes real effort to bring the peace of God, the healing of God, the right relationship of God into difficult circumstances. The work of peacemaking is all about restoring and renewing the harmony, the shalom that God intended from the beginning of time into that situation, into that relationship. Why in the world should we be about forgiving others? Lots of people ask the question, so let's just unpack it. First of all, we should forgive other people because, first of all, God's forgiven us, hasn't he? It's real elementary. We should forgive other people who have caused us harm simply because God has forgiven us. Look at Colossians 3.13. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone, anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you, what? Must forgive others. When I take moments and I sit back and I consider all of the things that God has forgiven me of, it makes it a whole lot easier for me to humble myself and forgive other people. I'm certain that if you took an accounting of your life and you and the Lord pondered everything that God has forgiven you of, it would make it remarkably more easy for you to extend forgiveness to others. Just consider the price that Jesus paid for your sin, the price that he paid for my sin. There was this debt that was outstanding with God, but it didn't remain unpaid. None of us could have paid it, but Jesus could, and so Jesus did. Jesus paid the debt that you owe and that I owe, that all of us owe, because he's merciful. He extended his mercy, and he wiped the balance sheet clean. He forgave us. And I know some people, when they consider the heavy load of tragic brokenness, sin, despair in their life, they say, Brian, you have no idea the stuff I've done. God could certainly not ever forgive me for that or for that. Or for that, I'm sure there's people sitting right here today who are thinking that very thing. There's no way that God could forgive me for that. You have no idea how awful it is, how dark it is in here, how black the whole of my sin is. But look at Colossians 3.13. Remember the Lord, what? Forgave you. He forgave you. And so whether you believe it or not, it's true. He forgave you. Forgiveness for the asking. Free. He forgave you. No matter how black the hole is, no matter how dark it feels to you, he forgave you. We forgive others because God has forgiven us. We also forgive others because this resentment deal, you know what that is. This resentment deal, it just doesn't work. The resentment thing, it just doesn't work. Holding on to the resentment is several things. First of all, it's absolutely unreasonable. It's just unreasonable. It's unhelpful. It's unhealthy. Look at Job 5.2. To worry yourself to death with resentment would be a foolish, senseless thing to do. And people literally do that. They worry themselves to death. They resent themselves to death. Look at Job 18.4. You are only hurting yourself with your anger. Consider the anger that you might be clinging to with regard to somebody else who caused you great damage and tell me how the anger that you're clinging to is affecting that other person. It's not. It just isn't. It's just you. And it's just eating you and eating you and eating you. We forgive others because of the resentment deal. It just doesn't work. And then we also forgive others, third, because you and I, we're going to need some forgiveness in the future, aren't we? We're just flat going to need some forgiveness in the future. Look at Matthew 6, 12. This is from the Lord's Prayer, interestingly. And we all pray the Lord's Prayer sort of blithely. We just sort of 
la-di-da-di-da through the thing, but pick up on this, you know this line, and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And we pray that prayer, we pray that prayer awfully lightly sometimes, but it is not a prayer to be taken lightly. Because when we pray that prayer, we're saying, God, would you please forgive me at a proportional level to the amount of forgiveness that I am extending to other people? God, would you please forgive me at the same level of forgiveness that I'm giving away, see? And I think about my life, and I think about my need for forgiveness, and I need and I want And I desire God's complete and full forgiveness. Which means in light of the Lord's prayer that we'd better be extending that same amount of forgiveness to everyone else in our lives. No matter how bad, severe, hard, difficult, damaging the hurt they've caused us is. No matter how hard. The same amount of forgiveness. And so we hear all those three things. Oh, sweet. I should forgive other people. It's going to be real easy, right? I receive mercy and forgiveness from God. Therefore, I just go and I just start forgiving everybody. It's kind of like a mathematical equation. A plus B equals C. God forgives me. I forgive you. Simple. We're done. Let's go home. Pack it in. But that's far from the way it goes, isn't it? And it doesn't go that way because, frankly, we don't like to forgive people. It's true of me. Very often, I do not like to forgive. And I'll bet I'm not alone in that. So instead of it working like it's supposed to work, where God forgives me and then I forgive you, it more typically goes like this. God forgives me and then I refuse to forgive you because you don't deserve it. Because I like my resentment. I like hanging on to it. I think I told you early this past summer about one of my seminary professors who I was very upset with because he called me a racist. In a public online setting with the other 21 of my cohort members, the other 20 of my cohort cohort members, he called me a racist. I was absolutely stunned. So was the rest of my cohort. And so we spent the majority of the summer with all of our online interactions, which is the way we interact uh, in this master's program, uh, with this taint of this unbelievable allegation that was absolutely so far from the truth yet one that my professor continued to stand by, refusing to back down because of, and I quote, the way I was processing our class material and the questions I was asking. You're a racist because of the way you're processing this material and the way uh, you're asking these questions. I think the best way to say it would be to say that I was absolutely incensed. I don't know how else to say it. I confronted my professor in an email at first, and he pushed back. Actually, pushed back clinging more tightly to the allegation than he had at the start of the whole thing. So I picked up the phone and confronted him again. This time, in uh, voice at least, he blamed it on the online interaction. Ah, it's the online interaction. You're misinterpreting and misunderstanding, so on, yada, yada, yada. Pretty soon, the director of the program, the dean of the seminary, they were on the phone with me, actually apologizing on behalf of my professor, but acknowledging to me very vocally that he wouldn't apologize because he thought he was right. He didn't think he was wrong in calling me a racist. So I want you to know that this process that I'm going to walk you through over the next few moments on how to forgive other people, this isn't just academic for me. In a very real way, I had to walk through this quite in difficult fashion just this past summer. I spent the majority of the day processing this very same material again and again and again with a new circumstance that surfaced right front and center in my grill. And we all, every single one of us, if we take reconciliation seriously, we will have to walk this out almost every single day, forgiving people, making relational peace with people. And it doesn't matter whether the person thinks they wronged you or not, whether they've asked for your forgiveness or not. We must be about forgiving other people. And there's three R's to this process. It's easy for you to remember. The first R is that we've got to reveal our hurt. We've just got to step up and man up or woman up, whatever you want to call it, and say, look, you caused me 
pain. And sometimes you get to do that in person with somebody. Sometimes you don't get to do it in person with somebody. But you have to just reveal your hurt. Because a pain, a damage, a wound that's been caused can never be healed unless we acknowledge it. We have to reveal our hurt. And that was difficult for me. To send an email to my professor and said, look, you called me a racist and that hurt me deeply because I'm the furthest thing from a racist. That hurt me deeply. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to say that to him. But if I ever hoped to get around the bend of forgiving my professor, I had to just tell him. I had to just man up and say, look, you hurt me. The second R then is you have to release the offender. You've got to just let it go. You've got to just put it down. And you're releasing your offender from a whole bunch of things. But the primary thing you're releasing them from is your right to get even with them. Because we all think we've got the right. You caused me harm. I'm going to inflict damage on you as retribution, as payback. But when you release them, you're saying, I relinquish my right to get even with that person. You're actually uncurling your fingers from around their neck. And I mean that figuratively, of course. And you're right to get even. You're letting go. You're putting it down. How often do we release the, uh, uh, when do we release the offender? You do it now. Like right now. Just let go. Just put it down. Just stop the resentment. You do it now. How often do you do it? Well, you do it continually if that's what it takes for you. You do it continually. Peter, in Matthew 18, he approached Jesus and he said, Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? Seven? Jesus laughed at him. Seventy times seven. And Jesus isn't meaning for us to do the mathematical calculation there and then forgive that number of times, 490 times, right? No. Jesus is saying, lose track of the number of times that you forgive somebody. Literally, lose track. Don't keep score. You're not making tally marks. You lose track of it. And then you ask the question, how do I know that I've released the offender? How do I know that I've actually forgiven? It's this, when the thought of that person doesn't cause you pain any longer. When the thought of that person doesn't cause you pain anymore. Another way to measure it might be when you can pray blessing over that person. And I want you to know it's not at all about forgetting. Forgiving is not at all about forgetting. A German pastor who endured the darkest days of the German Third Reich, he said it this way, one should never mention the words forgive and forget in the same breath. Don't do it. Don't do it. We remember, certainly, But in our releasing, we no longer hold the memory against the person who wronged us. We're not holding it against them. We're praying blessing over them. When the thought of them, the sight of them, doesn't cause me pain anymore, I know that I've released it. And the third R is you then replace the hurt with God's peace. You replace it. And lots of times we trip up on this thing like, well, when and how is justice going to be rendered? This person harmed me gravely. So where's the justice? And that's not our concern. Because at the end of the day, God's the one who's going to balance the books on every wrong that's ever been committed. And I trust, and we must choose to trust, that he's going to do it far better and in far more perfect fashion than we could ever hope to Because he is perfectly just. He's the one who's balancing the books. And that reality, that truth, that understanding ought to set us in the place of fleshing out what Colossians 3.15 invites and challenges us to. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. You and I decide every day when we wake up what's going to rule in our hearts. We choose. We can choose to cling to the misery of our unforgiveness or we can choose the peace of Christ. It is our choice. The challenge is to replace your hurt with God's peace. See, And I wish I could just throw this whole deal into park and just leave it there. All right, enough. Repairing relationship by forgiving those who have hurt us. But we're not done. We can't be done. 
And we can't be done because we've all hurt people. What do we do about that stuff? So let's talk about making amends to those we've hurt. Romans 12, 18 gets right at the heart of this because there's going to be times where we've hurt somebody and we're supposed to go to them and make it right and it doesn't go very well. Lots of you have experienced that very thing. You've gone, you've tried to make amends, you've tried to settle the balance sheet. And Paul writes this in Romans 12, 18, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Because see, when you go and when you seek to make amends and it doesn't go very well, the person doesn't respond as you hope and pray. They'll respond and they throw grenades right back in your lap. Paul says, you've done what you're supposed to do as much as you can to live at peace with everyone. You do everything you can. The response that they give you, that's between them and God. That's their deal. You're freed up from that. First of all, I invite you to make a list of those you've harmed and what you did, and you're actually going to be challenged to do that this week in your homework. Just make a list. Make a list of who they are and what you did to them. And I want you, when you do that exercise, please don't think about the logistical side of it. Lots of times you'll write down a name and you'll go like, now, how in the world am I going to be about making amends with that person? How am I going to do that? And you start to think through the logistics of that. Maybe they're dead. What do you do? Don't think about the logistics of it. Don't think about that. Just make the list. Those you've harmed and what you did. Number two, and then think about the process that you would like someone to make amends to you. Jesus challenges us. Do unto others as you would like them to do to you. If someone was coming to you to seek forgiveness, how would you like that to go. And we think about things like timing, for example. When somebody's laying their head on their pillow at night with their eyes falling shut, it's not a good time to say, dear, I have some forgiveness stuff that I need to do with you. No, don't do that. If it's after 9 p.m., don't do it. Hard conversations after 9, they're off limits. Just don't do it. Stop hard conversations after 9. They never go well. Before 9 or nothing. Think about the timing. Think about your attitude. What's your attitudinal posture when you approach that conversation? Go in private. Public settings are never good for these sorts of conversations. Go with humility. You're only thinking about your side of the ledger. Lots of times we approach people to ask for their forgiveness and we say, uh, I, I do this sometimes, uh, honey, I know I wronged you, I know I said, I know I did, but... I only did that because you, uh-uh, take the butt out of the conversation. Really. Just take it out. Just say, dear, I know that I did this and that was wrong. Would you please forgive me? I'm going to do my best not to ever do that again. Will you help me to that end? I'm only worried about my side of the ledger, not hers, not theirs, not the other person. And go, when you go, go without any expectation. As a matter of fact, you might go expecting the very worst because you might just get it. Go expecting the very worst. Dial them way down. Don't expect like angels to sing and the heavens to open up and it's going to be because you might probably will be disappointed in that. Go expecting the very worst and if the heavens open up, sweet. Put your expectations down. And then think about the appropriateness of your going. There's this little caveat to the choice we're talking about this week. It's tagged in there. Except when to do so would be unwise. I say that if you had an adulterous affair uh, and you managed to salvage your marriage in all of that, don't go to the person with whom you had the adulterous affair and seek to make that right. Don't do that. Okay? Just put it down. Figure out another way to do it without actually interacting with that person. You can do that. You can absolutely do that. Old boyfriends and girlfriends who you may have wronged, don't. Don't go there. Just put it down. Make it right another way. There's ways to do that. And then consider a restitution piece in your forgiveness seeking. I often ask the question of people who I'm seeking forgiveness from, which is quite frequently, just so you know, and I say, what could I do that would make it right for you? I had a meeting last week, as a matter of fact, that I actually took a blank check to, and I sat down across the guy who was quite upset with me, 
And I said, look, what would it take for me to make this up to you, financially speaking? He shook his head, stop, no. We never actually had to go there. But sometimes it might be a financial piece. Other times it might be a behavioral piece. But consider restitution. Consider asking the question, how can I make this right? How can I make this square? Our friend Don Lloyd, who's been a part of the Journey Church community for several years now, he's going to share with us how he came to the place of making the repairing relationship choice. And so would you please help me give a very warm welcome to our friend Don. The part of repairing relationships that I want to talk with you about this morning is that of making amends when you've hurt someone else. And to help you understand the situation, I'd like to just give you a little background about myself and and how this situation came to be. I was raised in a small town in southeastern Colorado. My father was a farmer and a carpenter. My parents both became Christians just before I was born, so I was in church from the time I was an infant. As a result of that, I committed my life to Christ as a child. Went through school, graduated from high school, and I attended the University of Colorado. And while I was attending there, I sensed that God was leading me to occupational ministry, so I enrolled in Denver Seminary, where I earned a Master's of Biblical Studies. Upon graduation from seminary, I still was not really certain about where God wanted me to go and what he wanted me to do. So we moved to San Diego, and I started working a secular job, and at the same time, I was studying for an MBA at San Diego State. The church we were attending there asked me to take on various responsibilities, and as they observed me and ministry, they eventually asked me to serve as an interim associate pastor. And it was through that experience that I became convinced that God wanted me somewhere in the role of a lead pastor. Through a variety of influences and circumstances, I was eventually appointed to be the lead pastor of a new church in Billings. My family and I moved there in 1977, and we went to work establishing a new church there. That church grew slowly and steadily over the years, and in the mid-90s, we had reached an attendance of about 200 people. But during that period of my life, there were several things going on, big dramatic changes, and as a result of some of those things, I made a very poor choice. My children had reached the age of college and were leaving home, and we were becoming empty nesters. Both of my parents passed away in the space of about 14 months. The church had reached a size that we were having to contemplate another building program to accommodate the people that were coming to church. My mother-in-law had passed away several years before that, and my wife had entered a period of depression, even dipping to the level of contemplating suicide. There had been several issues in her life, most of them related to a difficult relationship with her father. Being a natural enabler, I tried to fix things for her. And I finally came to the realization I couldn't fix those problems. It wasn't possible. Basically, I gave up on her. At about that time, an attractive young woman in our church, a bit younger than I, came to my office for marital counseling. She was strong in ways that my wife was not. I was attracted to her, and long story short, we had an affair. It went on for almost two years before people of the church finally became suspicious enough to confront confront me. And at that point, I confessed my sin and resigned from my position. My wife and I went to counseling together and worked at putting things, repairing our relationship. But I became discouraged that positive change in dealing with issues would ever really come about. And after about a year and a half... I moved out of the house and into a condo that we owned in Big Sky. And within a couple of years of that, I filed for divorce. My early years in Big Sky were very difficult. Even though I was the one who had filed for the divorce, the end of the marriage was very painful. 
even though I was responsible, the breakup of our family also was very painful. When I moved there, I was still quite attached to the woman with whom I'd had the affair, and my relationship went nowhere with her, and that ended up adding more pain to my life. The huge loss of reputation, the loss of privilege of ministry, all of that was very painful as well. The church in Billings had made attempts at restoring me, but because of struggles in putting my marriage back together and because of my continued attraction to the woman in my affair, they eventually gave up on me and released me. And then I struggled alone. Living in Big Sky, I began to attend a church there. And I made a couple of friends who became great sources of comfort. And eventually, healing began to take place. As time passed and more healing took place, I sensed the need for a more effective church in Big Sky that would be attractive to the average person who lived there. I and a few friends began thinking about starting a new church. It was about that time that I started attending Journey and I met Pastor Brian. And we had a couple of conversations about starting a church in Big Sky and eventually we came to the conclusion that we should work together. And as a result of that decision, Brian asked me to speak at the weekend worship services here at Journey in an August weekend. I don't think he was really prepared for what followed. By that time, several children of families from the church in Billings had moved to Bozeman, going to college here, whatever, and they were attending Journey. And when word got back to their families in Billings that I had preached at Journey, it created quite a stir. And it was at that point that I knew I had to address the restoration of relationship with those families. Brian was very helpful in acting as a mediator between him and Tara, making the phone calls and setting up the meeting that took place in Billings. At the beginning of that meeting, Brian explained why we were there. And I spent some time talking about my personal odyssey and what I had been through and where I was. There were a few questions, a few tears, and a lot of reconciliation. We left that evening with an almost unanimous sense of restoration. There was, however, still one individual with whom I did not have a sense of restoration. But I'd taken the steps that I could to accomplish that restoration, and the rest was up to him. A few years after I moved to Big Sky, I met a very sweet lady who really loves the Lord. Just over a year ago, she and I were married, and it's now our desire to serve God in whatever ministry we can there in Big Sky. And as I conclude, I'd like to share a verse with you that I came across in some of the deepest part of my struggle and my pain. It's found in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and it reads... My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father on our behalf, in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, the great restorer of all relationships, is still my advocate, and he's still your advocate. It's a big deal. I asked Don to tell a story because lots of times in situations like that, we think there's no hope of reconciliation ever coming to be. If he'd asked me at the start of that whole process when I sort of engaged with Don and he asked me to ride along with him in that process, if, if you'd asked me how I thought that was going to go, I'd have said, it's going to go nowhere fast. My expectations were dialed way down. But when we met in that room in Billings a couple of years ago and saw God show up in a very special way, it, it was uh, awe-inspiring. It inspired worship of God and his ability to break in even to the deepest, darkest, most broken relationships and bring healing and bring renewal. So come out of hearing Don's story saying, I've got 
something like that in my life. And if Don could do it, there's hope. There's absolutely hope. I did a little reading this week about bed sores. I was a little bored. I did some reading about bed sores. And uh, if you don't know anything about a bed sore, it's something that happens to people who are bedridden, uh, even to people who spend the majority of their day in a wheelchair. They're especially dangerous to people who are paralyzed because they can't feel when there's been an injury, even a small scratch or an irritation. And that small scratch or irritation becomes the entryway for an infection to set in. And a bed sore, if you've ever seen one, they don't look that bad when they first start. They just look like this little sore. But all the while, underneath the surface, contaminants have seeped in, crept in, crawled in, however contaminants get their way in, and they start eating away at healthy tissue. And those contaminants, if they're not stopped, they'll eventually dig and eat and claw their way all the way to the bone of a person. If they get to the bone, sepsis can creep in, set in, and you can actually die because of this tiny, tiny bed sore. The only relief for those terrible infections where sepsis has crept in is to have radical surgery where a surgeon goes in, digs out all around the bed sore. You then spend the rest of your life watching that place on you because that part of your body is highly susceptible to further infection, further injury, further damage. I want you to think today about the unforgiveness and the bitterness and the resentment in your life being just like a bed sore. And it might look small to you, but underneath, it's eating and eating and eating away at all of us. And honestly, every one of us sitting in this room, all of you, you look fantastic You've done great stuff in your life. Lots and lots of you have made great relational strides with people. You've done hard work of repairing some relationships. But just about every single one of us has some place in our soul where unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness resides. And we've just hung on to it and we've just covered it up and we've just rather like enjoyed it even at some level. But I want you to know that that unforgiveness and that bitterness and that resentment is a toxin. It's a poison that's eating and will eat right through your healthy relationships in the same way a bed sore eats through healthy tissue until it gets to the bone and until it causes death. See, that bitterness in our lives, the resentment in our lives, the anger, the hostility that you feel that we won't deal with is eating away just like a bed sore. It's eating the healthy relationships in our lives. And one of these days, if we're not careful, the other shoe will fall. Your spouse, your friends, your kids, whoever it is, will approach you and they'll say, I'm done. I'm absolutely done. I want out of your life now. I want you out of my life now. I don't want to be with you ever again. And marriages die and friendships die and love dies all because of unforgiveness, all because of resentment, all because of bitterness that we cling to, that we just won't deal with. And so where this all lands for all of us today, me included, is with the challenge to get rid of the bed sore. Just get rid of it. Will you forgive that person? Will you release your hands from around the neck of the one who hurt you? Will you stop telling the story? You know the story, the one over and over and over again. Will you put it down? Will you stop stabbing yourself with the pain that you feel towards those that you cannot or will not choose to forgive? Will you just put it down once and for all? The band's going to come. And as they do, I'm going to ask you to pull out that sticky note that you should have got when you came in today. Just pull it out. And I'm going to ask you to spend some moments, even between now and the end of our time together today, spend some moments writing names of people on that sheet of paper, on that sticky note, of the unforgiven people in your life the people that you're clinging to bitterness and resentment and maybe even hatred, the people who you're clinging to. And please, please don't tell me that there's not anyone. Please. That's called denial. 
It really is. And that's between you and God, certainly. But just start writing the unforgiven people in your life on that post-it note. Some of you might write a couple of names. Some of you might fill the front and then you might flip over to the back and just fill it in, seriously. Just start writing. And as you're writing, I want you to consider that it doesn't necessarily have to be some huge thing. Ladies, you might be holding on to some unforgiveness toward your husband for the dumbest little thing. Men, you might be doing the exact same thing with your wife, holding on, holding out on forgiving her for some little dumb thing. Maybe she had a bad day and she snapped at you, or maybe he had a bad day and he snapped at you, or maybe she had a bad day and she didn't do something that she said she was going to do, vice versa. It doesn't have to be some gigantic, abusive, terrible thing. It might just be little, but you're just hanging on to it. Just listen, if you would, for the voice of God. People who are unforgiven in your life, Write that name down. Write those names down. Don't think about the logistics of it. Don't think about how am I going to do that. Just think there's forgiveness that is outstanding. Do whatever business you got to do with God around that. And this is true. The person whose names you're, the people whose names you're thinking of, they don't deserve your forgiveness. You're right. They don't deserve it. That's the point, see. They wouldn't need forgiveness if they deserved it, would they? Don't let that be an excuse. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And then after we pray, if you've done the business of forgiving the people who use, whose name you wrote down, I want you just to crumple that piece of paper up, a symbolic act of saying, I'm done. It's forgiven. The slate is clear. I'm done. There's some garbage cans on the way up. I just invite you to use them. Just throw them away. Put it down. You're done. But only do that if you're ready to forgive and forgive completely. Now, lots and lots of us, we might have written down a name. I wrote down a couple of names we're going to have to lean into, that I'm going to have to lean into more than this time and space will allow. Hang on to your sticky note if that's you. Make that your homework. Take that with you. Set some intentional side time aside, you and Jesus, and press in. And you invite and you invite and you invite the forgiveness of God to wash over those names one by one. I'm certain that there's some of us here today that we just need to start at the beginning with God. You just very simply and plainly desperately need to be forgiven by God. You've been running from Him for a very long time. Why not today? Take Him up on His invitation that He's making to you to come home to Him. Thank you so much for your forgiveness. Thank you so much that you're a God who pursues and pursues and pursues us. Who longs after relationship with us so much that you sent your son to die in my place, our place. To settle the score once and for all. But I pray that this community called Journey Church would be a people of reconciliation, would be a people of mercy giving would be a people of peacemaking God help us to be courageous and bold to that end Father 
And those of you who are here today that need to start at the very beginning with God, I just invite you to pray along with me. If you're tired of running from God and you just want to come home, just say, Jesus, I don't even fully understand the scope of what all this means, but I know I'm tired of running. God, I'm so grateful to you for sending your son, Jesus, to make a way for me to live in relationship with you, for our relationship to be restored and healed and new. God, I know I botched this deal. And I know that I'm separated from you. But God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and I ask you to please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I'm asking you to become my friend right here, right now. I'm asking you to start the process of changing me right here, right now. God, I'm asking you to start cleaning up my life. Please, Jesus. And if you prayed with me just then, that's the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Because it's so weighty, I'm going to ask you to just let me know that you prayed with me just then. Would you be so bold as to just slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and just say yes, right there, right in front, and you there, and you there, and you there, and you there, and you there. I see you. Both of you right back there. And you right there, buddy. Way to go. God's coming in. granting you the life that he intended you to live from the very beginning of time. God, thank you for these hands that were raised. Thank you for these decisions that were made. These are new lives in your kingdom, Father. And I pray that there would be a real sense of your peace reigning in their hearts from this day forward, God your peace will be fully evident in their lives. Make them ambassadors and agents of your peace in the world as well, Father, please. We pray this in Jesus' holy name.